Admit it, you have a big, sexy idea for yourself and your business. Our guest knows from experience that your big, sexy idea, the thing that you want to become known for, likely already exists. He has helped CEOs, best-selling authors, big-name performers, and professionals on the way up to find their differentiators and dramatically grow their revenue. And his methods? Well, you can start using them today. It's Mark Levy on this episode of the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow. By talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. You might have heard of Mark Levy, but even if you haven't, then you very likely have heard of some of the professionals that Mark has helped tell their stories. Marshall Goldsmith, named one of the world's top business thinkers, said this, quote, Mark helped me understand who I am, establish my brand, and communicate my brand to the world. Simon Sinek, the best-selling author of Start With Why, said, quote, Mark helped me find my why. He has also worked with CEOs, best-selling authors, and performers on network TV and from the New York and Las Vegas stages, people who are already high-profile but still need something new. Mark also works with people who are on the way up. That level of practical expertise is why I invited Mark Levy to the podcast and why I'm so excited he's joining our conversation. I had the opportunity to meet and hear Mark in person at the latest annual meeting of the National Speakers Association. And I know he's generous in sharing stories, tips, examples, and exercises. Mark is the founder of Levy Innovation, a positioning and branding firm that helps consultants and other thought leaders increase their fees by up to 2,000%. He has written or co-written five books, including this one right here, called Accidental Genius, Using Writing to Generate Your Best Ideas, Insight, and Content, one I've referred to many times. Interestingly enough, Mark also creates magic tricks and shows. His work has been performed in Carnegie Hall and Las Vegas and on all the major TV networks. Mark Levy, I think you're definitely ready for our big messaging show. Welcome. Thank you so much, Jim. You know, you have a very professional radio voice. This is the right thing for you. I thought you'd um, <laughs> Jay, I thought you were going to like like start spinning Stairway to Heaven or something like that, or like Brandy <laughs> by the Looking Glass or something like that. That's kind of you. Maybe there's a big, sexy idea in all of this for me. That's right. You're the business <laughs> DJ. That's right. Mark, I recall just a few months ago when I joined your session at the National Speakers Association, you had this great hook called the Big Sexy Idea. And many people, I would suspect, would think of the Big Sexy Idea as something to come in the future that doesn't exist today, like an idea for a new product or company, and you should go and get in front of a whiteboard or a flip chart or go to a cabin in the woods for a week and muse about it to try to come up with something that's brand new. But your conception of a big, sexy idea for a business professional struck me as something very different. My interpretation, it's the thing that exists today. It just hasn't yet been made clear and compelling and differentiating. So Mark, is that a fair interpretation? And how should our message managers think about what could be their own big, sexy idea? That's an interesting interpretation. That is, 
So what you just said that the big sexy idea already exists within your work, within your story or so, that's fair because when we're looking for it, I tend to look at what already exists. But that said, it can be something that you can create out of nothing, right? So just to get that clear, a big sexy idea is your differentiator. It's a differentiating idea that you put at the fore of your business. So it comes through loud and clear in everything you do, like in your website, in any books you write and so forth, so that anyone who falls in love with that idea has to seek you out because you embody that idea. You represent that idea in people's minds. And so often, because you got to start from somewhere, I take a very Zen-like approach to this. It's like you got to start from somewhere. So I usually like to start with where, like, who is the person or what is the organization that they're with? What are they already? What is it that they do? And how were they founded? Or like, if it's an individual, like, when were they born? And what did their parents do and whatnot? And so we actually start to progress through their lives. And what it is, is that I'm looking, I look at people's lives as if they were a book. Because I actually have a background in books. For 14 years, I was a director of special projects of the third largest book wholesaler in the world. So we would buy millions of dollars worth of books from like Doubleday and Simon and & Schuster and Random House and so forth, the publishers. And then we'd sell them to independent bookstores and Barnes and & Nobles and Amazon and, and people like that. So I sold a lot of books. And I got to, a book is a commodity. The book that I have is exactly the same book that my competitors had. And by the way, most of my clients, the bookstores already had the book or knew it was coming anyway. So it was all the identical thing. Nevertheless, I sold a billion dollars worth of it. Like, how do you do that? And so I got very, very good at sizing up something and seeing what its main idea was and if it should sell or if it shouldn't sell and what was happening in the world that might help it sell better or might stop it from selling, right? Makes sense. So selling tens of thousands of different books over the years, I just, when I left the book world 16 years ago, I kind of just did the same thing with people's lives or with companies' lives. I would just like look at Jim's life as a consultant. And I would say, what is the main idea of this quote unquote book that he has written, right? It's not your book right? I'm looking at your business, not your book, but I think of it like a book. So right. it's, okay, what's the main idea that Jim's leading with? What are the ancillary or satellite ideas that surround that main idea he's leading with? What are some stories that he's telling or stories that he's not telling? Why is this work important to him and so forth? So I look at all that stuff and then I say, I wonder if we changed up that main idea in Jim's quote unquote book. I wonder if we moved an ancillary idea to the fore, would the book be a better seller? Or if we put two ideas together that hadn't been put together, would it sell better then? Or, you know what I mean? Put a story to the top. And so that's what it is. Like whoever comes to me, I'm really just looking at their life or their company as if it was a book. Does that make sense? It does. And I remember you talking a lot about the value of an authentic story or authentic chapters in your book or your organization's book as you characterize it. It was very useful to me. I was thinking as you were talking in that session at NSA about how important that is. And as much as people talk about the need for honesty and transparency and authenticity, 
of how too often we try to force it. I even thought back in some of my own experience about when I unwittingly tried to force it and how bad that ultimately felt. And it, you know, it just didn't fit. And I remember you talking about the power of a backstory and what that means. There was a phrase that you used, maybe you could explain a bit with the power of a backstory. I think you described it as something which shows that you're an apple tree growing apples. In other words, you're doing the things that you have been trained to do or born to do. Could you explain that a bit and and how people can begin, again, to find that story in what they've done and their own backstory? Great. I'd love to. So first, before I get to backstory, this grows out of, a backstory grows out of what I'm about to say. You talked about the idea of honesty. One of the most important things that would separate you is to be super honest about the work you do and who you like to work with and how you go about working and what happens when people call you. Like I try to get my clients to be more honest than perhaps they've ever been before about laying out all the things that they do, like on their website or when they're speaking to people, because I just think that that's good ethical way to be. It's like you wouldn't want to attract someone to you who you're like kind of telling them a lie about who you are. You know what I mean? So like I'm all for giving people a taste of what it's like to actually work with you you know, ahead of time, like give it to them as soon as possible, right? So further with this honesty thing, for instance, one of my clients years ago, brilliant, brilliant guy, a futurist, and he had written, I was coaching him on his writing, right? Because I'm a writer. And I was coaching him on his writing, on his blog post writing. And he sent me a blog post about leadership. And I don't remember the exact line But he said something about before making a decision, great leaders always ask themselves this question. And I don't remember what the question was. But I told him, I said, you know what? This strikes me as a lie. I know you don't mean to be lying. I'm not saying you're a liar. I'm just saying that you're trying to write a good blog post. And this sounds like good blog post writing, but I don't think it's real. I said, I know a lot of really great leaders, and I don't think most of them ask themselves this question before they make a decision. Do you think that? And he said, no, now that you say that, they don't really. It just sounded like it came next in the, in the blog post. <laughs> right. And we started to talk about like what the honest thing was that would happen there or whatnot. Anyway, long story short, the next day, he forwarded me four blog posts and he meant this without joking. He wasn't being sarcastic or joking. He said, Mark, here are four blog posts I had written before you and I spoke yesterday. I went back through them and edited out all the lies. Could you please read them to make sure I didn't miss any? And I always (laughs) remember that, that he had said that. So like to me, just being honest about who you real, like one of my elevator speeches, right? Consultants and other thought leaders hire me to increase their fees by up to 2000%. I hope that doesn't sound salesy because all that is, is just telling the honest truth. Because years ago, when I was looking at who all my clients were, I said, oh, okay, this guy went from charging $1,000 for a show to charging $20,000 a show. This guy went from charging $800. You know what I mean? I just started to write down the facts of each client. And then I said, oh, yeah. So they're increasing to up to 2,000%. You know, some of them, a lot of them. 
And so I put that down. So it resonates with people because it's honest. So when you out there listening are trying to differentiate yourself and your brand, one of the most important things is to be as honest as you possibly can about what it's like to work with you. I call it the open kitchen concept of business is what I call it. In the old days when they used to when they used to make restaurants, they would put the kitchen where? In the back, in the corner, in the dark. And so you'd sit there, there would opaque doors in front of it. So you'd sit there and you'd start saying, where's my waiter? Where's my food? I wonder if this place is clean. And you get more and more agitated. And when the doors of the kitchen swung open, you try to catch a glimpse to see if you saw your waiter back there, like eating coleslaw or something like that. (laughs) Did they drop my steak on the floor? That's right. That's right. And you try to see if the floor was clean or whatnot. But now people demand differently. So the open kitchen concept, many of the progressive restaurants, when they create a new restaurant, where do they put the kitchen? In the middle of the dining floor or even up front. And they don't have walls there, although occasionally I'll see glass walls or like handrails to delineate it. And it's because people want to see the ingredients. They want to see what the chef looks like. They want to see how the waitstaff interacts. They want to see the techniques being used. You know what I mean? They demand this openness. And really, no matter what it is you're selling out there, I don't care what the thing is you're doing. The more open, I'm not talking about giving away NDA secrets or proprietary secrets, but the more open you can be of what it's like to deal with you, the better off you are. Sometimes with my clients, if they're writing a web page, I have them write a web page of what happens when you call. And the web page might even begin, or it can be a video. Like they'll say, when you call, here's what will happen. You will speak to Jim. Jim will ask you questions like blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. He asks you questions like that because he wants to know blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like, in other words, like it's going through. It's to take the intimidation out of it so people feel already bought into who you are before they even call. That's interesting. Forgive me. The the open kitchen concept. Yes. And uh, and you think about applying that to professional services. So it seems that on one level, it offers that visibility, that transparency that is increasingly something that we want as consumers or as clients. But there's also a theatrical aspect there too, right? Especially in the open kitchen concept, you get the visual, you get the get to see the process and some flames and spices, and hopefully they don't drop your steak on the floor. Right. <laughs> so there seems that you're getting several things at, uh, at one time by opening a window to the process and helping people anticipate how you're going to serve them. Right. Beautifully, beautifully put. It's really giving people a sample of what your work is up front so they're not in the dark when they hire you. It's no different than when you get like a magazine and there's like a little packet of shampoo in there. And, you know, the idea is if you like this one ounce of this shampoo, hey, you know what? You can buy the bottle for 16 ounces, you know, for like this money. It's the exact same thing. The more you can give someone an actual sample of the work itself that you do, the better off you are. Mm. So along with this, so then you also kindly asked me about backstory. And so I say that your backstory is the story that shows that you were born to do what it is you do. 
and that what it is you do means more to you than just as a means of making money, that it's almost like a cause in your life. I say that your backstory, and this is what you were referring to before, it shows that you are an apple tree growing apples. An apple tree growing apples is iconic. It is doing exactly what it should be doing on earth. It was put on earth to grow apples and by damn, it is growing apples. So you say, wow, how iconic, you know, that apple tree is doing exactly what it should be doing. I bet you those apples are delicious. I bet you they're juicy. I want one of those. But now imagine if you came back a year later and you saw the exact same apple tree, but this time it was growing not apples, but oranges. What would you say? You'd go, ugh, that is disgusting. Like, what is wrong with that? I bet you some farmer grafted that on somehow because maybe it was a bad, like, orange crop in Florida and he's, like, trying to make money now or something. But I bet you that those oranges, they're tart. I bet you they're bitter. You know, like, I God knows what it would do if I ate one of those, what it would do to my body. Keep me away from those. I don't want any part of that. And so, so many businesses come across as an apple tree growing oranges that is, they're just selling whatever is expedient for them today. You know, like they're hustling and they're selling one thing today, but they'll sell something different tomorrow and something yet different the next day. And people don't want to be a part of that story. They want to be part of an organic story. They want to be part of the apple tree growing apple story. They want to be part of the story that shows that you are doing what it is that you were meant to do because you that means you're outstanding at it. Right. And so that's your backstory. And you can use it in a bunch of different ways. You can put it on your website. You can have a video of yourself talking about it. You can use it in speeches. A very common way for me to suggest people to use it in speeches is that they come up and they say, okay, today we're going to be talking about X. You know, and you're going to be learning all about X and how to make it happen in your business and how to increase productivity with X and so forth. But before we go into that, let me tell you why this work is so important to me. And then you begin with your backstory and you tell your backstory. And at the conclusion of your backstory, you say something like, so that's why this work is so important to me. Now let's go on and talk about X. And then you go right in to the other stuff that you were talking about. Would it help, Jim, if I gave an example of a backstory? I think it would help a lot. As you talk about it, I can imagine how the feel, and I've I've heard it in the audience, is that it makes everything less transactional and makes it more relational. And so maybe, uh, yes, if you have a great example to show how that works in practice, that would be very enlightening. Yeah. So I'll give you one. So it's a fiction to think that we only have one backstory. We're all composed of many, many, many different stories, and it just depends on which stories we think most gel with what idea that we're trying to get across, right? Like, I'm not trying to be some con man here. I'm being, like, super honest. Like, when I talk about the backstory about my positioning work, it's different than the backstory about me talking to writers about writing, which is different than me talking. I also create publicity stunts and things like that. Like all these things have different backstories to them because I think a different story is seminal to each one of those things. So let me tell you one of the stories that I use when I'm speaking about positioning. So in 1971, I was eight years old 
And overnight, like eight-year-olds do, I suddenly fell in love with baseball. I went to bed one night. I didn't love baseball. The next morning, I woke up, and for some reason, I loved baseball. And I lived in Flushing, Queens, New York. And of course, the Flushing, Queens, New York team was the New York Mets. So I loved the New York Mets, particularly their first baseman, Ed Cranepool. I idolized him. I wanted to be a first baseman like my hero, Ed Cranepool, in the major leagues. My dad bought me a first baseman's mitt. I started to practice it. And anyone in the neighborhood, any of the kids knew that when we were going to play a pickup game, they should stay away from first base because that was my position. I was going to field first base, right? I was the first baseman. So make sure Levy does it, right? And so I knew, though, that if I wanted to up my game and potentially get into the major leagues, right, I'd have to up my skill set. And at that point, as an eight-year-old, upping my skill set meant joining the Little League, you know, at that time. So I went to Little League tryouts. And I still remember I went to this field. There were about 25 other kids there. And there was a grown-up there, Mr. Jacobs. And Mr. Jacobs said, okay, this is tryouts. I want all you kids to run out onto the field right now, and I want you to run to the position you want to play. And we all ran out onto the field, and apparently I'm not very good with probability because I didn't anticipate this. But when I got to first base, there were already four other kids standing there at first base. Apparently my dream of being a first baseman was their dream of being a first baseman too. And even though I never saw any of these kids play baseball ever, I didn't know them at all, I instantly knew in my eight-year-old mind how each one was superior to me and I was inferior to them. This kid looked stronger than me so he could hit the ball further. This kid looked more wiry than me so he could feel better and so forth. Never saw them, but I knew that they were better. And I felt horrible. Mr. Jacobs said, okay, wherever there are multiple kids at a position, we're going to have to have a tryout. But all you kids ran out to eight positions. Baseball has nine positions. There is one position that no one has run out to, and that position is catcher. You cannot play the game of baseball without a catcher. Who will be our catcher? And almost without thinking, I threw my first baseman's mitt down, and I jogged over to home plate, and I picked up the first baseman's mitt. And Mr. Jacobs said, okay, good. Levy will catch. Now we can play baseball. And if you end the story right there, it is just a story of my cowardice. It's just me being confronted with a dream. And then when I saw other people with a similar dream, I didn't think I wanted to fight with them because I knew in my mind, at least, that I'd come in last. So it was just me being a coward. It was me sticking my head in the sand. But the story does not end there. Because now that I was the catcher, I was the team's only catcher. I'd have to catch every game, every inning, every pitch. So I had to become good really fast. I took a book on catching out of the library. And then I also now watch the Met games on TV. And instead of just watching Ed Cranepool play first, I also watched Jerry Grody and Duffy Dyer catch. And I saw like, where would they throw their mask during pop-ups and so forth so they wouldn't trip on it? And how would they throw out base runners and so forth? And I incorporated what it was I was seeing into my game. Long story short, at the end of three months, I represented our team in the all-star game as a catcher. So where you end a story, where you start and stop a story ends a whole lot. If you stop it too early, I'm a coward. And if you stop it three months later, I am an all-star. Same situation. But the reason why this is a positioning story, and I tell this when I'm teaching people about positioning, is this. It's that your field, 
everyone listening to this right now, in your field, there are positions in your field, just like positions on a baseball diamond. And some of those positions are occupied and some of them are unoccupied. You want to find the position in your field where you win just by stepping into it. In other words, just by showing up, you're the winner because no one else is there. And that is the seminal secret of all positioning. You look up on any book on positioning strategy, I don't care how sophisticated it is, that is every idea in positioning ever created is essentially around that idea. And I learned that idea all by myself when I was eight years old. So essentially, I was born to do the work of a positioning guy, right? Ever since I was a little kid. So that would be an example. I'm not saying that that's the world's greatest story, and I told the story there at length, but it is a story. It's a true story, and it just kind of shows how I go about thinking about the work I do. You know, your positioning story or your backstory can also just be about how you founded something. Let's see, very quick. So about 11, 12 years ago, there was a 24-year-old guy, I might be slightly off on these figures, who was a grad student at MIT, and his name was Drew Houston. And Drew Houston was a computer science major. And so he had to take like a six-hour bus ride from Boston, where MIT was, to Chinatown in New York City. It would take about six hours. But he was excited to do it because he had a really big computer project that he had to do. And he said, great, I'm going to bring my laptop with me on the bus. Remember, this is 11, 12 years ago, and that's an important part of the story. He said, I'm going to bring my laptop on the bus and I'm going to get my project done in the bus ride. This is going to be great. And so he got on the bus with his laptop and he opened up his laptop, but the program he needed wasn't on his laptop and he checked his pockets. And so he didn't have any thumb drive in his pockets. It wasn't on his keychain and it wasn't around his neck. And he realized that he had left the important program back on the thumb drive on his desk at MIT. And he got so angry at himself. Like he couldn't believe it. He said, man, now I have a six hour ride on this bus and I have nothing to do. And I'm being held hostage. I have one of the most powerful things in the world here, like this laptop. It's just so, so powerful. And I'm being held hostage by a two inch piece of plastic and like aluminum that's back at my desk. That just shouldn't be. And so Drew Houston, brilliant MIT student that he was, started to write a new program on the bus just to kill time because he had to do something. And by the time the bus stopped, he had the first iteration of a business that would later be called Dropbox. Wow. An $11 billion business, all because he left his thumb drive back at home on the desk. And by the way, I put in some dialogue for Drew Houston. I don't really know what he said there. <laughs> but anyway, like both those things, mine was about why I do the service I do and how it's so an important part of me. The Drew Houston story shows you he was undergoing this problem that the very thing he created solved that problem. You know what I mean? Right. So for all of you out there, you really need to look at what are those stories in your life or in the life of your company or in the life of your product or your service that are around transitions, you know, you look at points of transition, like you were fired 
or the company went into some new thing, right? It's transitional moments are usually where your backstory happens. Or also, to put it differently, moments of transformation. See, the idea of transformation, transformation is a scientific term. And so it means going from, I don't know the exact definition, but I'll give you my uneducated definition of it. It's going from one state to another state. You know, it's like water going from water to ice. You know, it's transformed into ice or it transforms into gas or whatnot. So it's from one state to the next. So people often tell me, oh yeah, my business transforms or my product or service transforms. And I say, I believe you that it transforms. Like that sounds super cool. It's just that transformation is from one state to another. So in order to understand how forcefully you transform with your product or service, you need to tell people what the opening state was. You know what I mean? Like right. you can't say, and, you can't and, say, uh, go ahead. Stories, you know, you, as you say, there's, there's transition, but there's also tension and there's uncertainty. Right. So you're standing as an eight-year-old at first base with three other boys. And we right. can envision that, but we don't know how that's going to end. We don't know whether you give up baseball or if there's the big tryout, you know, and you, whatever might be there, there's the tension and the uncertainty with Drew sitting on a bus. What's he going to do um, when this imported asset isn't there? And so I think it's, it's some sort of, as you say, a transition or there's a tension that's inherent in the transformation because without those things, without the tension, without the uncertainty, there's probably no need for transformation, right? That's exactly right. I was once speaking to a group of CIOs, chief information officers or chief technology officers. I don't quite remember who they were, but they were all from different companies. And afterwards, one of these chief technology authors said to me, I know my backstory. And I said, what is it? He said, I was a student at MIT. Today is MIT day on the gym uh, program. You know, everyone's <laughs> I don't like so, that. I'm a, I'm a Florida and a Duke guy. Right. Oh, there you go. We'll give the MIT people their due, uh, due regard. That's right. That's right. But are you from the Florida school where Jim Morrison went to? Well, I'm from the University of Florida where uh, Tom Petty, the late Tom Petty. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Gainesville native. Yes. All right. Cool. So the chief technology officer said, so years ago, I was a student at MIT and I was taking physics and I was failing every single one of my courses. And that was unusual for me. All my physics courses, I was failing. He said, I had always excelled at physics, so I couldn't make heads or tails of this. So I printed out my transcript and I brought it to my advisor, my physics advisor. And I said, I'm failing every one of my physics courses. What should I do? And he looked at my transcript and he said, well, here's the problem. You're taking too many computer courses along with your physics courses. So I want you to go to the bursar's office right now. And I want you to drop all your computer science courses. And the guy telling me the story said, and just having him articulate that to me, giving me this like binary choice, this either or choice, it made me so furious. I didn't say anything to him, but inside me, I got so angry that he was having me do this thing, cut this thing out of my life, that I instantly knew what I should do. And so I did go straight to the bursar's office and I did drop all the courses in one subject, but I didn't drop my computer science courses. I dropped all my physics courses. And that's how I knew that I needed to devote my life to computers. So imagine him telling that story like in a leadership meeting or, you know, it's exciting. And as you say, there's a conflict in it. I'm interested, Mark, in your 
one of your backstories? Because as you mentioned, there'll be different points, different elements of the value you provide that each of those will likely have their own backstories. But briefly, you mentioned earlier, you had a hand in selling a billion books, something that was- A billion dollars worth of books. I'm sorry? A billion dollars worth of books. A billion dollars worth of books. Okay. Well, we'll make sure that we're there honest and authentic in that. A billion books would be a lot more than a billion dollars. That's true. That's true. But that's still a lot of books and very undifferentiated channels for bringing those to market. You were successful in book publishing and you were also, as I recall, writing books at the time. Then you made a change. You got out of that business. So- what prompted that for you? What was your realization? And then when you were at that point of transition in your career path, how did you begin to craft that story? So this was 16 years ago. I had been in the book business for 14 years and I really excelled in it. I, I was really good at it. And selling books to like bookstores, you know, on the phone or so. I loved it. But I saw essentially what we were at the company I worked at essentially what we were was a middleman. We would buy the books from the publishers and then we would sell them to bookstores. And even 16 years ago, I saw that the middleman was going away. Or if the middleman wasn't going away, it was transforming. So I saw the very thing that I loved so much. It was about selling books, sure, but it was about speaking to people about books. You know, like getting excited about them, talking strategy about books, talking about the poetry of the book. Even now, by the way, when I'm working with people, I'll often quote poetry and other things, like in order to get lessons across them. So I really care deeply about books. And I saw that my deep caring about books was going to become less and less important in the upcoming few years. And so I decided it was time for me to get out. And what I did was, in order to jump out with a gig, I believe the very first client that I left was I worked with someone to help write a book for them. So in other words, I didn't necessarily jump out saying I'm a positioning consultant or I'm a differentiation consultant or anything like that. That stuff was all implicit in who I was. It was part of my DNA, but I wasn't touting that. I was just essentially saying I was a consultant or a marketing consultant or something like that. And it was only through working with people that I kept on seeing, as you said earlier, oh yeah, this needs a hook. Like what's the hook here? What's going to make this different? And so that's why now essentially I'm a differentiation consultant. I help people differentiate their company, their business, their products, their services, a book they're writing, a speech they're giving, a show they're doing, a TV show, a Broadway show, whatever it is, we differentiate it so it stands out uniquely. And then I also teach them how to talk clearly and engagingly about it, right? So they can pitch it to people and get people interested in it. But that all came, if you think about everything I just said to you, it really all just comes from my love of books. And you know, like- you could Yeah, say, natural evolution there. That's right. That It's an evolution, right? Beautifully put by you. Uh, it's an evolution, but it's not a disruption. You know, it's not like I became a baker or something like that. 
It's like to write a book, you need to have it differentiated and you need to write about it clearly and engagingly to get people fascinated in it. And so again, all I just do is I do that with, like you could come to me with like, I've had politicians come to me, you know, like how do I differentiate like this policy, this idea? You know, I've had businesses come to me. I've had people selling products, services, all these types of things. But it's the same thing. It's like, what is it that people expect to be getting in their normal course of life? What is it that have they gotten over and over again? And now how do we make this different in a way that's meaningful so that people will discuss it? Mark, that, talk. That, that's elegant and instructive. And I, I want to drill down into that just a bit. Is something that you do exceptionally well. And I know you do this for clients as well. It's the whole concept of an elevator pitch. Now, I will give away a bit of my feeling on it because I think that's a very misused term. And I think that the way that a lot of very good, very valuable professionals try to stitch something together in a monologue delivered at fast pace is really ineffective. And that's a shame. But there's great value in having that short story, something that connects you to the people you serve and the results that they get and being able to use that fluidly in different sorts of situations where it doesn't come across as self-serving, but it's really interesting and important. And so you're good at that. I even quote you in my upcoming book, Manage Your Message, to be out next year, that of how I, I just love the elegance of the structure that you recommend. I've heard you say, consultants and other thought leaders hire me, so you establish your audience, to increase their fees by up to 2,000%. And then you say, I do that in a couple of ways and go about explaining some of the how. So could you deconstruct a bit of that structure and how you came across that language for yourself? Oh, sure. So again, as you very rightfully say, And by the way, I have multiple elevator speeches. The reason why people find it difficult to write an elevator speech is that they think they need to have one elevator speech that sums up their entire, their humanity, their totality. And so I say, you need a seven second elevator speech, a 30 second elevator speech, a two minute elevator speech. You need an elevator speech about your life, about your business, about each of your products, of each of your services, and you need those elevator speeches of differing lengths for all this. So you don't need one elevator speech, you need a few dozen. Now, people will often go, ay, 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 I can't believe I can't do one, and now you're telling me I need like 30. <laughs> and it's in actuality, 30 elevator speeches is much easier than one. Because the reason why you can't write one is because you're giving yourself the impossible task of summing up your entire being in one. And so having little discrete elevator speeches is really easy because, right, it diminishes what it is that you're talking about. I don't mean diminishes making it sound less. I mean, it diminishes. It's just a part of who you are now. And like also, you don't have to- I would think it'd feel forced into whatever conversational setting you're giving this, right? If you have one Uber and I mean that not in the sense of the ride-sharing company, but one Uber elevator pitch that you're trying to cram into every conversation, right? That's exactly right. You know, you don't want to come across as artificial. You want to come across as natural. Now, understand, coming across as natural doesn't mean that you have to come across as searching. I often find when I'm helping people come up with elevator speeches, I often find that they force in like feigned sincerity 
they'll go, what I do is like they're searching for it. And I say to them, no, no. I say, if you went to a surgeon, would you want the surgeon to say, if you asked them what they did, you wouldn't want them to say, well, I'm a, I guess I'm a, a surgeon. <laughs> and I operate on the spleen and the lungs and sometimes. Or unless you, you know, me on your pancreas, whatever, yeah. Right, right. You don't want them to do that. You want them to be confident. So my elevator speeches, all of them, I could fire off at you even if you woke me up in the middle of your sleep at night. And so the one, the elevator speech that you talked about when I'm speaking to solo people or people in small companies, and it's really three elevator speeches in one. If you saw me on stage, I diagram this with my hands as to show you. It's three different elevator speeches. There's an overarching elevator speech, and then it leads to two elevator speeches right after that. And it's this. So consultants and other thought leaders hire me to increase their fees by up to 2,000%. I do that predominantly in two ways. The first way is I'm a positioning consultant, so I help them come up with their big, sexy idea, the signature idea, the idea they're going to be known for throughout the marketplace, and I make sure it comes through loud and clear in everything they do, like in their websites or you know speeches that they give. So that way, anyone in the marketplace who falls in love with that idea has to seek my client out because my client embodies that idea. They represent that idea in people's minds. So there's no option other than to deal with my client. So that's the first thing I do. I position them around a big, sexy, differentiated idea. Second thing I do is I coach them to write books and give speeches to use as skyrockets for their business. And I could go on. But again, the opening, the overarching thing was consultants and other thought leaders hire me increase their fees by up to 2,000%. Boom. And then I set them up. You're going to hear two more things. I say, I do that predominantly in two ways. And now I give two more elevator speeches. Yes. It's just one is about positioning and one is about book writing and speech writing. And if you paused at the end of increased fees by 2,000%, very likely you're going to get asked, how do you do that? What are you talking about? And so it's a natural... Again, it doesn't feel forced. You're kind of peeling the onion back, of layers of the onion. And what I like about this message managers is notice the conversational language that Mark uses. I mean, you can imagine having this conversation in a hallway or at a conference or whatever the case might be. And Mark, not once did you say world-class disruptive platform. <laughs> right. I'm so happy you say that. I so pull back on People will say they're great, they're superlative, like it's okay to say that stuff. I'm not really against saying it, but I come from a background as a writer, and to me, like facts mean everything, right? F-A-C-T-S, facts. So I try to base everything I'm saying just on the facts in the situation. You know, I was working with an architect firm years ago, and the architect firm said people look at architect firms as unreliable in the commercial realm. Like they built gigantic office complexes and whatnot. They think that we're reliable, that we just want to build buildings that are homage to our artistic integrity, and we don't care about budgets, and we won't return phone calls and things like that. And I said, okay, so you need to come across as the reliable architecture firm. And they said, absolutely. And so we look through their stuff, and this is going to sound all numerical. You don't have to just have numerics to substantiate. But it was things like that I had them say, we've been in business for 20 years. In 20 years, we've done almost 4,000 projects. 
214 of our clients are repeat clients, including the very first client who ever hired us when we opened our doors 20 years ago, the Mountain Lake School District and so forth. They kept on going. Oh yeah, right. They said on average, our repeat clients hire us for over 16 projects. We have 24 people working here. On average, they've worked here over seven and a half years and so forth. Like all the stuff that showed that they were all about reliability. And by the way, I said, it doesn't all have to be numbers. I remember that same architect firm. He told me a story that I said, yeah, you need to put this in your script. He said, there was a company that wanted to hire us to design a building for them. They hadn't even hired us yet, but the head was in a jam. He had to sell a building the next morning at 9 a.m., an office building, and he had to take that money and roll it over and buy another building and so forth. There was like a domino effect. But if he didn't sell his building at 9 a.m. the next morning, everything would have to wait and it might fall through. So like he was petrified because what he didn't realize was he needed the exact dimensions of his building for the closing papers before they could sell, and he didn't have those. And so the architect firm told me at 2 a.m., he got into a car and joined the owner of the building. It was raining out, like at the building, they went up to the roof and the head of the architect firm had some kind of laser measuring device. And he lasered the width and the depth and the height and all kinds of things on the building. So the next, you know, that morning at 9 a.m., when they were ready to close, they could close because he had went to all this trouble to get the exact dimensions. So to me, I said, yeah, that's a reliability story. You got to say, yeah, we're reliable. We've been in business 20 years. We've done over 4,000 projects. We have 214 repeat clients. First of all, you know, and let me tell you a story about how reliable we are, you know, and then you go into that, right? Does that make sense? So it's all about facts. It's all about being honest. It's all about, it's not using as many superlatives as it is using things suggested by the honest facts. And they're numbers that people can understand and in your story, you're prompting a visual because as you're going, I'm imagining in my head, laser measuring devices and buildings and the weather and, and all those sorts of things, all which tie back into that, that central value of the story, which I can imagine just dissipating those anxieties about reliability. Right. As you, as you right. I know we're toward the end of our time. Mark Levy, this has been a joy to have you here. I hope that could have you in some future episodes because you have lots of wonderful ideas about finding the stories that are around you, about using lists to generate ideas and establish thought leadership. There's so many more things that you do, but let me thank you and give you an opportunity for you to tell us all about Levy Innovation and how we can learn more from you and how you work with clients. Oh yeah. Well, thank you. I think everyone knows enough about Levy Innovation right now. But just since you asked, my website is Levy, L-E-V-Y, innovation.com, levyinnovation.com. And if you go there, I have lots of videos of me describing concepts and so forth. There's also a bunch of PDFs. For instance, when you get there, at least as I'm delivering, as we're talking on this podcast right now, who knows in the future if this will be, but when you get there right at the top, there's a 40 or 50 page free PDF for you to download called list making as a tool of thought leadership. It helps you create differentiation or content or whatever it is you need. You take the core concept that you're thinking about it and have you make five or 10 or 15 different lists, simple lists about the idea, like what's surprising about this idea? 
What's obvious about this idea? What are stories that come to mind about this idea and so forth? Stuff that's very easy to answer. You make these different lists and new ideas and strategies and whatnot about the idea just pop up to you. It's really like a very, very cool technique. And you don't even have to leave your contact information. Like it's just right there. List making is a tool of thought leadership. So yeah, that's uh, go there. If you're interested in differentiating your business or a book you're writing or a speech you're writing or need some coaching in whatever it is you're writing, just email me and we'll see if we can set up a call. Mark Levy, message managers, thank you. Both perhaps an accidental genius, but a generous one for sure. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. And thanks everyone for listening. I appreciate it. We'll include links to Mark's website and those free resources in our show notes. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please make sure to join our growing list of subscribers so you don't miss an episode. And please take a short moment to rate and review. That helps more professionals like you learn about the podcast. For more insights you can use in your business, I offer the Message Manager Memo, a free weekly email with practical tips. It's a short read that I believe you'll enjoy having. You can sign up at jimcarr.com. That's K-A-R-R-H. If you have ideas for the podcast or the Message Manager Memo, or if you'd like to talk about my speaking to your organization or perhaps working with your team, then you can email me directly at jim at jimcar.com. Until next time, thank you, message managers. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.